Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced for WGXC Wave Farm by New Adventures in Sound Art. On today's show, we share a conversation I had with Eliona Koryalova, Mike Holboom, and Heather Fries. They're filmmakers and sound artists featured in an upcoming online screening on July 15th in honor of World Listening Day, which highlights the role of sound in the many ecologies that coexist on Earth. Mike Holboom and Heather Fries will be presenting their biopic film Listening with Hildegard Westerkamp, who's a composer and sound artist from Vancouver that played a critical role in the development of the interdisciplinary field of acoustic ecology and who also was a member of the World Soundscape Project in the 1970s. And the World Soundscape Project established a number of uh, research methods and terminology that, is, that are used today for studying the soundscape. Aliona Korleova is a sound artist from St. Petersburg, now living in Toronto. She started as a documentary filmmaker before uh, moving over to focus completely on field recording and composing with environmental sounds. Before uh, listening to my conversation with these three artists, uh, we'll uh, listen to a bit of Mermaids from uh, her piece, uh, Accidental Wilderness, which will be featured on the July 15th show.
would you be able to talk about accidental wilderness and uh, what prompted making that piece, what, what inspired making that piece, and where you ended up uh, with it? Well, I started working on it in the beginning of pandemic, uh, and this was a first spring for me in Toronto because I moved here in end of 2019, and everything was new, and um, and also because of lockdowns and everything, uh, only places I could reach was on foot or my uh, by bike, and we live on the um, uh, waterfront very close to a lake. So it was very strange time where, where it was a little bit more quiet than usually. And I just discovered how much is going on around me. Um, I was surprised how much of a wildlife there is in the downtown of Toronto. So I started to research history of waterfront and I was fascinated by how much it changed over the last hundred years. Um, the shoreline went through a lot of transformation uh, and there is artificial uh, land and also um, like a place where I live right now, it used to be a lake, uh, bottom of a lake hundred years ago. So uh, also I discovered um, this phenomenon, accidental wilderness, um, it's ecological phenomenon um, uh, which happens on a, on a, like when wasteland uh, transforms into new habitats, when nature takes back, uh, reclaims the territory. So this happened in Toronto uh, in um, Tommy Thompson Park, Leslie Spit. Um, because this is actually like just construction garbage, which was, was dumped into a lake uh, in the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And no one expected that wildlife will take over this territory. And it, not only that, but it became very significant um, uh, for migratory birds. Because Toronto uh, is situated on a crossroad of different migratory uh, routes. Um, so you, you can see much more biodiversity here, like in downtown Toronto, near Lake, than anywhere else, like in suburbs or so I was just like very fascinated by it. And I, I was trying to trace this boundary, this ever-changing boundary between the lake and the city and how, how different animals and birds inhabit it uh, and adjust to urban uh, life.
an excerpt from uh, Mermaids by Eleona Koryova from Accidental Wilderness. And uh, that piece explores the presence of natural sounds in urban contexts, and that's a theme that uh, appears in the film uh, Listening by Heather Fries and Mike Holboom. And uh, here's Heather talking about uh, that connection, and uh, we'll follow that with a sound clip from the film, and then continue on with the rest of the interview. <laughs> well, I know um, Hildegard... Um you know, she's done work with the city, right? To think about sound and sound pollution, right? So she's, I mean, her, a lot of her um, recording and, and thinking about sound has had this kind of like really direct kind of political application. She's leading sound walks um, pretty regularly, I think still in Vancouver with groups of people to kind of attune them to 
you know, the, 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 the natural sounds in an urban environment, but also like the, the sound pollution, right? Um, and just to become aware of the sounds that, um, you know, that we're, that we're living with, that we maybe block out or, you know, just this idea of like, we can close our eyes and block out the visual world, but it's, it's much harder to close our ears, right? So it's just becoming aware of, of this kind of acoustic environment and, and all that we're sort of like managing and tolerating in, in a day. It was, it was definitely really profound for me doing a, a sound block with her. It's so such a simple thing, but um, it's, it's just such a powerful act. And we were, we were actually in a forest area, but when we, you know, we, you know, when we closed our eyes, then, you know, we could hear this like huge sort of industrial fan. It was quite, we were quite far from it actually, but it was, it was present. And, and, um, you know, have we, have we not done that sound walk? I probably wouldn't really have noticed it, you know? Told you about my radio program soundwalking. I wanted to to transfer the concept of soundwalks onto the radio medium. So for about a good year, I went out recording anything I felt like. once a week for this once a week radio program. Because I knew that uh, people block out environmental sound naturally, it's a very foggy day in Vancouver. We sort of give the context, the date, the weather, where I was, I would point things out in between. So my voice would be a bit of a mediator between the environmental sounds and the, and the listener.
it was amazing how even though it was co-op radio the show stuck out like a sore thumb because it changed the radio rhythm you know I'd come after the folk music show <laughs> and I'd make a crossfade into my show and everything slows down it doesn't matter what you listen to whether it's the traffic outside the window or or anything it doesn't doesn't have rhythm it doesn't have musical rhythm everything slows down to an environmental sound rhythm Mike and Heather made a film about a soundscape composer, Hildegard Westerkamp. Aluna has a background, a filmmaking background, but went into making sound art. So I wanted to maybe explore the relationship between these two areas and how they, uh, you know, influence each other. And uh, and uh, is there is there a gray zone, or do they facilitate different things that you can't you can't get in one or the other? Um. Heather, you, you met Hildegard Westerkamp um, when you were working on a deeply ecological film on the West Coast, yeah. Vancouver, near Vancouver. Um, maybe you could talk about that meeting and something about that film, the way that um, oh. Hildegard's understanding of ecology and her work, um, mm. city and outside the city, and, you, and the work that you, that you were involved with at that time were uh, really moving, moving together. Hildegard had made a piece called Beneath the Forest Floor, and um, she had made that piece um, when she was on the, the west coast of Vancouver Island, of, of the, um, what is known as Vancouver Island. <laughs> um, and she had made this piece that was quite, um, it was quite atmospheric, it, but it really evoked this sense of place and also just the experience of the place because my collaborator, collaborator and I had been making a film um, 
in, in similar places on the West Coast in the old growth forests. And it was just really remarkable how um, her piece really evoked this sort of sensory experience of being um, in that place. We were making images, but she was um, creating with sound. And so actually we used her sound piece in the film and they just, the, the images and the sound just kind of, it, it just was a, a, a really beautiful kind of pairing. Um, and usually I think you have to kind of work the sound and the image, it's, it's a process, it's a sort of dance back and forth. But in that case, it just, it just sort of magically fused together. Um, and there was a sort of a conversation between the sound, the sound and the image. Um, but it was also like Hildegard does this, you know, really deep listening in, in places and she's able to record the really tiny sounds um, and, and that she perceives there. And so, um, and then she, she kind of affected them. And so there was a kind of musicality um, also to the piece that she made. So it's, it's this kind of similar in, in terms of what we were doing with film was because um, we were manipulating a lot of the, the images and um, using different effects with them. And she was doing the same thing with sound, but somehow there was, um, yeah, this, this kind of um, manipulation of the sound, but being very, very um, true to the experience of, and the immediacy of the experience of, of the forest. Hildegard. Hildegard was part of a, a group of, of uh, people, radicals, I would say, working in a very new way, based in Vancouver out of Simon Fraser University in the late 60s, early 70s, um, in what would be, come to become, come to be called um, acoustic ecology. And I think um, they were one of the first groups um, who would step into very familiar environments, urban environments, in order to listen in order to bring attention to what everyone already, um, it was around us all, but we couldn't hear it. And I think there's some relation between um, the hopes of artist media, whether it's in movies or sound, that um, we can return to moments that are actually rather familiar, that are around us all the time, but it's, but they go, but they are so-called you know, beneath notice, or they are part of the quote-unquote background. Um, how to make an image of the background, how to listen to sounds that belong to the background. Oh, you know, I thought that the work that you're doing um, in this liminal space, um, calling attention to what we don't notice is, is also part of that practice. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> um... I'm kind, of, kind of trying to follow my interest in this acoustic ecology and trying to find my own way to do something in this field. And yeah, I have experience in um, background in in documentary filmmaking, but um, now I really prefer to do sound without images. I think it's f very liberating for me um, because whole uh, film kind of film is just unfolds uh, in my imagination and I find it more interesting for me to work in this way without images so like every listener will have their own film in their head um, and also I guess uh, this documentary film background gave me 
like a skill of observation. Um, yeah, I think um, this deep listening uh, thing just grew out from this long observation of world around me. And I just found that sound is like, has so much potential in it and much more than image for me. One of, one of Hildegard's central practices is the sound walk. And it just struck me again that one of the important things, one of the key elements of a sound walk is that it happens in a group, just like the cinema, or at least the cinema as it used to be, <laughs> when people would you know, go to a movie theater and, and have a collective experience by themselves. And similarly, in a sound walk, there's a group of people who gather to have an experience that's both collective but entirely individual. And at the end of the walk, there's a, a debrief. There's a moment where everyone sits around a circle or in a group and, and each person speaks about what they experienced. And it's astonishing the variety of impressions that have been gathered in the same place, um, in the same group, and how unique um, the listening of each of us actually is. And to be able to um, hear other people bear witness to their listening is a very, um, it's a very touching, very moving experience. Hildegard recounts some of this in the, in the movie. What I really noticed was how, um, like you're having this collective experience as Mike said, but um, we would walk and then we'd stop in different places and we'd close our eyes. Um, so right away, you're sort of in a state of attention um, that is very interior, right? So you're, you're kind of in a state where you're receiving um, the sound, but your eyes are closed. So it's like a very interior kind of experience. And I think a lot of people, I, like when we had the debrief, a lot of people's, you know, had these imaginative responses or like associations with different memories um, in their past. So kind of like what Alona was also saying about like that there is, it is, you do occupy this kind of more imaginative space maybe when you're um, really attuned to sound, there's more associations um, that are possible. But um, yeah, so just, just it's, it's just, um, and also Hildegard was really very assuredly kind of guiding us through this experience. And then she'd, she'd kind of come up to, to people with like a little seed pot or a leaf and kind of brush our ear so that we were really also, she was, um, you know, bringing our attention to these very tiny sounds um, and uh, kind of creating an experience for us. But just to be in a, in a state where you're, you know, that your auditory experience is privileged over the, the image or your visual observation. Really amazing. My relationship with sound started with uh, collecting. Uh, it was long before I was interested in film. And I would, I would just go around with my portable uh, cassette recorder and just just record some strange sounds which i found like 
funny or interesting. And I didn't plan to do anything with it at all. It was just like a strange hobby, I guess. I was like 15. <laughs> um, and I guess what fascinated me was that I could take a sound out of a context and a very ordinary sound can can become something else when they're separated from a context. And later when I started film, I learned how to play with this context, how to change meaning uh, by editing. Um, and I guess it helped me later to um, discover this potential in sound. Um, so I came to sound not from music, but from this like documentary editing uh, experience. Um, yeah, and at some point I will just I was uh, burned out from all images from film industry and everything, and it just sound um, became like a new field, um, totally free from any association, uh, like a bad association of industry for me. So um, I, yeah, so this relationship with the film is very complicated and. Um, sometimes contradictory for me. I think image uh, is something what is fixed, what we see image and it's like fixed reality for me. And with sound, like as I mentioned, I think like everyone imagines different things when they listen to, to sound. I, I mean, depending on sound, of course, but if you um, change contexts and you like, create some kind of imaginary space, then it just invites listeners to to enter their own imaginary space. And it's like very different from images for me. Um, and especially uh, in film sound, very often is something secondary, which supports images. Um, and I find it more interesting when yeah, sound is free from from this supporting role. Yeah, I think that was a maybe an interesting thing is the dialogue of sound and image, and um, in the film that Heather and Mike made, that you that you, that you allowed the images to create another conversation for the viewer, jumps off of the words that uh, Hildegard's saying in the films, but but they also go to other places and say other things. And similarly, you did that with the audio as well, the sounds that you uh, combined together. And uh, so in a sense, you're having three, uh, three levels of, of uh, engagement or communication with the audience member. And, um, and I think that sound can cover many, on its own, can cover many layers of, of meaning, whether it be musical communication or noise or environment. It can convey so many different things. And I, I was... Um, Interesting. Maybe if you can uh, illuminate a bit about your thinking process in terms of combining sounds and images, and how and what level of autonomy and and uh, uh, interrelationship they had. Um, when we, when Heather and Hildegard and I sat down for the first time, uh, just to get to know each other and then talk about the possibility of making a film. Um, at some point, Hildegard mentioned that other people had approached her, maybe even several other people, <laughs> about making a film. And she just sort of left it at that, like, <laughs> you know, 
others have sat in your chairs, in other words. And of course, those films weren't made. I think she was concerned that someone would make a movie that would look like a very standard TV documentary where um, exactly as Eliona said, the sound is a sound becomes a kind of slave to the picture. Um, whereas she, what she, without being able to, to tell us what she wanted, I think what she was inferring or suggesting or hoping for was a movie which, where um, she would be allowed to operate independently, so to speak. And the movie would sort of swirl around her producing associations and possible, possible doors that a viewer might walk through. Instead of um, the image of movie as a road that you walk down, that everyone walks down, it's a, it's a field and everyone is invited to step into that field in whatever way they care to. I, I like that analogy of a field um, that allows a lot, a lot of um, freedom and uh, uh, on, on, you know, from both the audience member's point of view and also the artist's point of view. Heather, did you have something to add to that? Well, I just, it's funny because I just am remembering that um, sitting down with Hildegard, I kind of forgot how reluctant she was <laughs> to, to, um, to do the film. Um, but, um, and I think it's because of, you know, she, she, for that reason that the, the, um, her compositions, you know, she, she was sort of, um, she didn't want them to be, the meaning of them to be fixed with an image, right? So that was kind of her concern, I think, partly. Um, but I think in the end, she was happy because there was this kind of flow of images that was, that would sort of, that was sort of associative, that didn't, didn't fix the, the sound, right? And the, the sort of meanings of the sound, but, so. Um, yeah, believe that she was happy with the film. Do, do you remember she spoke about um, uh, these David Attenborough documentaries? And she said, you know, yeah, there's, so there he is. You know, he's in this incredible, like, beautiful rainforest. Right. Yeah. This, these places. And then they would add the sound of a symphony orchestra. You know, yeah. like, you know, and she would look, you know, with her hands up and, you know, her face, like, as if, the, you know, the incredible sound of, the thousands of waves of cicadas, um, you know, rubbing themselves. Like, like, how could that not be enough? You know, <laughs> what, what, what was he thinking? Um, anyway, it's it funny. With my first piece, Whisper Study, where I had a studio recording of myself whispering, when there is no sound, hearing is most alert. I had this overlay sound of me whispering with like multiple sort of whispering sounds. And then I slowed that down on our analog reel-to-reel tape recorders. I suddenly heard this unbelievable sound, which was um, a liquid, almost river-like, water-like sound.
and then I slowed it down more and more and more and then I mixed those different speeds together and that produced this river clicking and slurping and I was so absolutely stunned by what I had just found there. I knew nothing of sound processing, right? It was so exciting, I had to leave the studio. I didn't know what to do with it. Aluna, <laughs> I was wondering if to get back to your uh, earlier point on, on uh, leaving behind images altogether and being more comfortable in creating sounds for the the imagination of the listener and uh, the kind of uh, visual imagination of the listener, if you will. Um, and I was interested in, in you maybe explaining a bit about when you hear a sound or record a sound, um, what are some of the things going through your mind and, and how it engages you and, and what's your entry point in, in working with it creatively? Um, I guess for me, most interesting thing is um, this aspect of familiarity um and context and yeah i find it very interesting that we tune out sounds we're used to listen to hear all the time um so we just stop paying attention to what what's going on around us and i when i record sounds i am really excited about like finding something in the immediate environment around me, something what what is, can be lost in between our sounds or just like um, just because it's very repetitive or something. And I like to bring these sounds from periphery to the center of attention. Another thing that um, really defines the way I work with sound and look look at it and is that I have um, very acute sound sensitivity. It's like to a point of a disorder, it's uh, misophonia and also hyperacusis. So I experience sounds um, like very loud and it's very, very intense for me. Um, comparing to most of the people, as I discovered uh, not that long time ago, um, so I react to sounds like very strongly and I notice things which our people don't notice sometimes. And it's not like my super ability or something. It, it can bother me a lot. Um, and I just have a hard time tuning out sounds. Um, but it also helps me to experience very... Um, mundane sounds, um, I experience them like very strongly. And I guess it helps me to pay attention to, to something, to, to some little sounds around me. One of the examples I can think of is this beautiful recording you made, Eliana, um, at the annual air show. It's just an incredible crowds, crowds of people everywhere of all ages and types. And then this canonizing blast from the air show, from this, from the from the fighter jets overhead, um, the sounds of the water, the 
the person, the vendor selling water bottles, and then you found somehow this lone, this single cricket. Um, and there's this counterpoint between this lonely, beautiful voice amidst this amidst this tumult, this unnoticed and left behind, um, really resident of this place. So, you know, someone or this for this being, this is their home. You know, everyone else here and everything else here is a is a visitor. Um, I thought it was a very beautiful, powerful, and wordless statement about the ecology of this place. When I think about this recording, um, it just uh, strikes me how people can tolerate, how, how is it allowed, um, like this military jets, how is it even possible that we do it every year in this city and so many people just come to, like to to watch it, to listen to it. Well, for me, it just it's a sound of terror, of sound of war. And um, yeah, it's just pure evil. I don't know how is it not forbidden. Um, so yeah, and it's like incredibly violent towards wildlife. It's like so disruptive. So yeah. Somehow I just wanted to hear it all from perspective of a tiny creature.
now that um, all of you have made something in a sense that has a relationship of sound ecology to it and uh, you've come at it all from different directions and what are the voices that you want to hear from in the future and what are the things to bring out what are the issues political issues in the uh, to do with um, sound and urban existence and uh, what are those uh, issues that that you may want to explore uh, going forward um, I've started doing a series of interviews with uh, field recordists, people whose sort of main thing is to go out and record this and that. Um, I started with this amazing Icelandic uh, recordist. His name is Magnus Bergson. He has a blog which he posts a new sound recording on each month, and he has done for, I don't know, more than a decade and a half or so. He takes extraordinary efforts to um, record these sounds. He, um, but he only travels inside his own country. It's an ecological ecological decision. Um, he has he has a deep um, relation with the technology, but also with the land. And he, what his favorite recordings are of basically nothing of silence. But of course, silence is never silent. So the soft, lowing wind over these uh, lava fields or with birds way off in the distance. Um, anyway, I wanted to hear voices from people that were working outside any sense of capitalist utility, the sense that our work needs to be part of a a commercial exchange. Um, it's not about becoming famous or building a career or becoming well known um, or making a name for yourself. Um, his work is freely available and circulating. He does virtually nothing to, <laughs> to tell anyone about it. Um, it's a very honorable outsider position. And for me, it's very heartening to hear voices from people that are living and working like that. Um, when I think about future um, in sound, I think about uh, disappearing sounds and disappearing voices of different species, which we lose all the time and will continue to lose, I guess. Um, and with my, my work, I think I'm just trying to convey my feelings of grief about all that and my love towards animals and my hope that I don't know if we listen closely we will appreciate them more and we will hear how much um, our life like human um, life affects animals and environment um, and while I very interested in acoustic ecology and documenting um, changes in environment. I also cannot really do it that much because it involves traveling a lot and actually creating all this noise in order to find silence. Um, it's just incredibly hard to, to find silent places. So I see my role as someone who just like, I don't know, trying to process all that from my work and yeah, I guess to convey my like complicated feelings about that. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I, I know that um, 
Mike, you and I have talked about a, um, a field recordist who goes, who's gone continuously to the same place um, and documented the disappearance of sound. I think you're speaking about Bernie Krauss. Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, to to return um, and record sounds over years, decades, even um, is is to really, I guess, be conscious of of this disappearance of plants and animals in a place. He's mostly going to kind of rural areas, wild spaces. I think just the act of listening. I mean, just as a kind of political gesture of just just of listening to what the sort of non-human world has to say to us is is something that I'm interested in, of, of just sort of being quiet and listening and um, even to not record, <laughs> but but just to just to be a listener. I was interested to know also other parallel things in the in the visual realm of of just going to watch or going to see or or things that you capture with the camera um, that also you know change your your attitude to to um, how you perceive the world I mean Heather you're working with um, very homemade animation techniques which are I think inviting us to see um, re reimagine the act of portraiture for instance or um, how we inhabit the images or how the that are around us or how we ourselves become an image um, like the images that are around us um yeah <laughs> i it's uh, i mean i'm working on an animation right now that like i i um you know so i'm 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 really in this world of images that i'm making that i that it it will be um you know uh very sound based work piece that i that i make and you know it's like a when i'm teaching i often get students to to make a sound piece and, and then to think about um the images after they they've sort of made a soundscape as a kind of exercise right just to kind of shift the the sort of you know privileging and the, the visual but um yeah, I feel like um, the the image. I, I I'm really hoping when I go to edit that the the piece will be guided more by sound, even though I'm I'm really deep in the image work right now. But um, yeah, to kind of let let the sound lead, right? Which is which is kind of how the um, the listening film was made. Mike did most of the editing, so. Um, but I feel like it was the sound was really given a lot of it had a, a big presence. Um. You've been listening to Making Waves. Our guests uh, for this episode were Heather Fries, Mike Holboom, and Eliana Korleova. You can join them on July 15th at 7 p.m. for more conversation and to experience their work in an online show hosted by New Adventures in Sound Art. Details and registrations are at www.nasa.ca. To take us out, here is Red-Winged Ping-Pong from Korolova's work Accidental Wilderness, which is available on the uh, Ryanji Bandcamp page. 
Making Waves returns one month from now. And thanks for listening.